Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business and the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. This episode was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic. And although the world has changed a great deal since then, we hope that this episode will be just as interesting and relevant as when we first sat down. My first guest today is Emma Bell. She is the co-chair of the FinBiz Task Force, tackling the 17 Sustainable Development Goals from the UN. She's also operating partner at R Capital, an investor. My second guest is Sir Richard Lambert. Richard is the chair of the British Museum, and he's also chair of publisher, famous for Harry Potter, Bloomsbury. I'll ask a former editor of the Financial Times which company over time earned his highest respect. We'll hear more about the extraordinary global platform that is One Young World, and we'll think about what today's business leaders can learn from history. Let's get to the conversation. Emma, Sir Richard, welcome. Hello. Now, I connect you for the first time today, and I'm going to start with you, Emma, please. Um, we meet through the fantastic One Young World, and I want to hear more about that and also about the task force that you co-chair. More personally, tell us how you got started. Okay, so um, 10 years ago, I was fortunate enough to intern at a company called Brandfuel, which is a great um, events agency. Uh, They do the likes of Google, Twitter, YouTube and events all around kind of the the tech space. Um, And one of their main clients at the time was One Young World, working with Kate Robertson on creating the first um, One Young World event. Um, So actually, whilst I was only interning, I was fortunate enough to be involved with that um, for the six months that I was there. And that was essentially the start of your career journey as well, was it? it? start my career journey I was doing a master's at the time yeah. um, I had to sort of get some money in get some experience and also kind of learn a bit on the job as, as your first kind of toe in the water um, and yeah it was pretty mind-blowing to be involved with something that was gathering people from you know a, a summit of people representing hundreds of countries around the world and it wasn't is epically ambitious this is Kate and the vision of Kate Robertson and David Jones yeah, but you just yeah. take take us remind us about its core purpose and also how that's played out in practice because I almost thought it could be too big a goal and yet it's happening. So, I mean, I attended the summit this year, which was in London, uh, the first time it's returned. Mm. And um, it's since the 2012 Olympics, it's the biggest single gathering of representatives across the world um, that we've had. I think we had representatives from 183 countries. Mm. Um, We had the opening ceremony at the Royal Albert Hall. We have ambassadors who are returning with the likes of uh, the Duchess of Sussex, Mohammed Yunus. Um, I met more Nobel and Peace laureates than, than I can even rename. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a week summit where we're talking on um, matters that have great social impact in the world. So obviously the climate crisis was quite pertinent, talking about refugees, gender equality, education. And essentially what it's trying to do is champion young leaders, spotlight young leaders and bring them together in terms of, OK, well, what are you doing in your space and how have you gone about achieving that? And then how can we use One Young World as a platform to give exposure for it, but also connect you to a network of plugged in people who can help amplify it in some way so it's connecting Connecting, sharing, sharing in, in, I guess inspiring each other, inspiring each other, and then also like getting people who are perhaps in a better position than you are. You know, young, young in this definition is under thirty, mm. um, perhaps thirty-five at a push. Um, and what we're trying to do is get more experienced industry leaders, politicians, and business leaders who can actually say, okay, well, you know what, we really respect what you're doing, and here are the ways that we can help support you with that. We partner with um, other companies and corporates who equally want to do their bit in sending, you know 
young attendees that are uh, employees of theirs. Um, and it's a way to not only kind of say, OK, well, here's a pat on the back for your hard work, but it's also, OK, well, how can we take you, put you in this environment for a week and then elevate all your ambition and your hopes from Superb. there? Superb. So this is One Young World. Yeah. Richard, anything like this when you were growing up? I mean, was there a... <laughs> Nothing. No, there was the Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> An international movement yeah, in exactly. its own way. <laughs> uh, in its own way, dib dib. Um, I mean, it does occur to me that that is an extraordinary international connecting um, opportunity. And um, a couple of things I notice, Emma, about your career. You have thus far avoided uh, the world of big corporate. Why am I focusing on what you haven't done? You've done so many interesting things. And I just wondered if that's a deliberate choice. You know what it was actually? Um, mm. I've got to be honest in saying that I'm a little bit of an anomaly. Um, I know that when you are finding your way in a career, a lot of people tell you that you should probably specialise in something or you should probably take a, you know, an interest in something and really hone that skill. Whereas I did the total opposite, which was I love a lot of things. I'm quite creative. I'm business minded. But equally, I'm a little bit entrepreneurial. And so what I spent my time doing was as many different things as possible. And actually, from an employer's perspective, they find that very difficult because it's very um, preferential to be able to put you in a box and say, OK, well, this is the prescriptive role that you do and here are the objectives and the tasks that you perform. Yeah. Whereas I'm a bit more like, OK, well, this is what I think I should do for you. Could you give me the free reign to go off and do it? And luckily, I've been able to uh, find places where they've indulged that side of me. It's a great way of doing it. <laughs> of course, the internship at One Young World, it's not just luck, is it? Give us a no. piece of advice that you know has helped you land these extraordinary opportunities. So I would just say don't be afraid to ask people because I know it's quite intimidating, but every single job I've ever had is through meeting people and having a conversation with them and them them in some way or other seeing something in me that resonates with them and almost, I think, being um, willing to be vulnerable and authentic and a little bit kind of like no questions too stupid. So I, I'm, I'm not afraid of asking stupid questions. I'm not afraid of saying what I want and just kind of going after it and then nine times out of ten, someone will pick up on that and, and you know, kind of give me a platform of some kind, which has been great. Great advice. The other thing I notice is this sort of sense of continuous learning. You have qualifications from Yale, from the Said Business School. I just wonder what's underpinning that. Um, and when I say yeah. underpinning, I mean, is it with a view to employability? Is it, is it a bit it's broader a than of, that? No, it's a view of curiosity. Like I'm, insa I'm insatiably curious. Mm. Um, I'm very... I don't want to say kind of fidgety because that perhaps suggests that I'm, I'm restless in some way. But um, the day I stop reading and the day I stop learning will be a very sad day for me because um, I have such a variety of interests that I want to kind of nourish and feed. Um, but also what I've identified is, um, unfortunately, in a lot of companies or in a lot of roles, um, they're not necessarily in the position to really do all of that for you. And so you have to take the initiative to do that yourself. Mm. And so when I decided that technology for me was a passion 10 years ago, I decided that even though I had a little bit of technology in my role, the way I was going to be able to indulge that passion but also refine that skill set was by finding volunteer positions mm. within the startup ecosystem with incubators and accelerators and mentoring other startups so that I in turn could kind of 
develop that skill set myself. Yes, I noticed this. And within that, ambition first. Yeah. That's, that is a familiar phrase, first, isn't it? First. We've had teach first, entrepreneur, entrepreneur first. first. Yeah. Why ambition? What was at the core of that? So my co-founder and I, Phoebe, uh, founded Ambition First in 2015. It was kind of a meeting of minds. We met as the, the Women of the World Festival that's at the South Bank Centre. So we were taken along as the only two young female representatives to sit on this sort of advisory board when we were setting up the finance representation of the Wow Festival. Because I think what became very clear was, um, for example, one of the issues with um, women is um, ability to understand their financial um let's call it assets, but their financial investments and their financial well-being. And so we went there as representatives from insurance, um, but I had a background in wealth management as well. Um, and we were talking about sort of the things we wanted to see from our industry, but all of which was from a young perspective, i.e. I'd met many people who had spoken to me about the fact that often there was a little bit of sort of a, a gender inequality issue in that industry, but also they didn't really know how to navigate it themselves. So what we decided to do was create something simply because we felt like we could. Um, but it was with a mindset of connecting like-minded people, providing a platform for them, providing an ecosystem for them. We managed to get 3,000 members in just over a year, which was all through social media and word of mouth and through our network. But what we managed to do, being a little bit cheeky, was sort of go to some of the top board level CEO, yes. um, C-suite advisors and say, look, would you give your time to this? What we've got is a captive audience. We've got 17 to 25 demographic and then we've got 25 to 35. We sort of profiled them and said, A, one of your biggest issues is um, talent. Mm. Not only uh, attracting talent, but then retaining talent. But here what you've got is a variety of people across sector, across disciplinary, who are saying to you, these are the reasons why they're feeling in some way or other um, unserved. And here are all the ways that we could partner the two together to um, improve it. Brilliant. So we did a training and development program, a mentoring program, <laughs> and then also did sort of like learning initiatives on the side of it. Because it strikes me, Emma, you're very spontaneous. And, and by that, I mean, there's a lot of discretionary effort required to say, you know, I don't have to do this. And yet I'm going to. And I just wonder mm. where that, where do you think that comes from? Um, so I've actually analysed that myself. So my mum, a single mum, sort of uh, started a business on our living room floor kind of 25, 30 years ago, I do mm -hmm. believe. Um, and she sort of always said to me, no matter what you do, I'm going to be proud of you. I don't think she did too many GCSEs. I think they were O-levels back then. I think she did one in sort of like home economics and mm -hmm. maybe one other. And so she sort of said to me, like, this is what I've done with no foundation. So imagine what you can do with the foundation that you've got. And, and she, she kind of prioritised my sister and my education over everything. But what that instilled in me was the fact that that was purely a starting point and it's sort of a safety net to know that no matter what I did there's unconditional love there but also I would always have someone who would support me and and lift me up and even from a young age she took me to like meetings she got me involved with events wow. and she sort of made me kind of feel fearless and I think I've always had that sense of, and I wouldn't call it entitlement, but I would call it a voice. I've always had my voice and I felt like my voice and my ability is just as important as anyone else's. And so that's given me the confidence to, to go at things without worrying about failing. Fascinating and extraordinary to hear as a parent. Mm. Um, and I know for a listener that will resonate as well. Emma, thank you. Well, stay with us because uh, um, Richard, Sir Richard Lambert, um, 
you have had so many extraordinary roles and continue to. Some of them have involved gazing into the future, editing the Financial Times, the world's leading financial newspaper, running the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry. But let's turn back the clock a bit. Um, it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, growing up in Manchester yeah. um, initially, um, but... How about your first ever job? Well, my first proper job, amazingly, was the Financial Times. I came out of uh, college where I'd messed about basically for three years. Uh, no particular idea what I wanted to do. Mm. Went and had loads of boring interviews with boring companies. And for some reason, went to the Financial Times. I'd had no journalistic experience at all. Really? And while I was there, somebody knocked on the door. This shows how long ago it was. says, it's the North Sea. There's a huge find. And I thought, crikey, that's interesting. And so I just wouldn't go away until they gave me a job. And I stayed there for 35 years. Well, <laughs> indeed. And editing the paper for 10 years, you doubled its circulation. But as you were joining, of course, when you say messing around, talking about reading history, a multitude of people who'd read history going into the Financial Times at that point, were they quite focused on who they wanted? What my uh, wife says, and she means it as a compliment, was studying history made it possible for me to make a few facts go very long way, which is, which is the great skill that uh, a journalist needs. And, and now, of course, the chair of the British Museum. But let, let's go back to those um, roots um, in, in the business world, because um, they're very deep roots. I wonder which companies really ended up earning your highest respect? Uh, well, that's a tricky one. Um, as you mentioned, I'm at the British Museum, so I would answer that with the greatest British business person that ever lived, who was Josiah Wedgwood in the 18th century, who created a company that lasted for whatever that is, near 250 years and before it was wrecked as a conglomerate. He was a person who overcame incredible challenges. He had smallpox, he had his leg amputated. He was an innovator. He uh, created new techniques for glazing. He invented consumer products. He thought of new distribution challenges, channels by uh, working with canals, which are a far better way of transporting pottery around the place than on a kind of cart. Uh, and he was decent to his workers. So he was the best, Josiah Wedgwood. After that, it's all been downhill. Well, we might, <laughs> we, might, we might come back to this theme of connecting the inventors with the business people, because, yeah. of course, you were Chancellor of Warwick University for a number of years, for eight years, in fact. But particularly talking about Wedgwood, there was a sense, wasn't there, that some of the great business creators were also community builders, yeah. philanthropists, yeah. social philanthropists. Yeah, absolutely. Cadbury, Levers, a whole bunch of them. And I wonder to what extent you feel that is still the case. I think one of the things that has changed in my working life, uh, which is now a pretty long one, is that the identity of a corporate with a community has been broken apart by a combination of things, which would include globalization, which would uh, include um, the chase for shareholder value and the priority that's been given excessively, perhaps, to um, short-term earnings growth. So, you know, I can remember a thousand years ago, there was a wonderful company called Pilkington's, mm -hmm. which was based in St. Helens. And St. Helens... glass. Glass. It was flat glass. They were incredibly innovative. They invented flat glass. Uh, Float glass, I mean, think of that. Uh, and, um, and they had a global uh, monopoly in that, well, share anyway. Uh, and they came from St. Helens. And when, uh, I, I guess there was a contested takeover bid for them in, I don't know, I guess the 70s or early 80s or something. And um, the whole community rallied. And I remember coming down to London, the St. Helens silver band came and played outside the House of Commons to try and stop this terrible thing happening. And it was stopped. And then 30 years later, uh, the Japanese came along and bought it. Nobody took any notice at all. It was no longer a court company town. It just went. So I think um, changes that have happened in the uh, global business 
climate have made those sort of community things much harder. Of course, there are organizations like Business in the Community, which I've kind of worked with over the donkey's years, and they are engaged. And with, but that strong, you know, roots, they've been torn up. And what about this wider potential for business to really rise to the challenges, not just through where it might give some of its profit, but through its core business to solve some of our biggest social challenges? How well do you think business is doing that? Because, of course, you have said, in fact, when you're running the CBI, you said, look, we, you know, we need businesses to engage with their communities to tell their stories more yeah. powerfully. And I just wonder if we can start to separate the rhetoric from the reality a little well, bit. Well, I think yeah, that's a good question. I mean, actually, I can remember when business in the community started, there were terrific riots in Liverpool, in Toxteth, uh, Liverpool. And uh, old Hezer Heseltine, who mm. was whatever he was, the, uh, the government minister responsible for trade and industry mm. business, uh, he took a bunch of business bosses up in a bus mm. and said, how do you think your company is going to do if this is the society you're growing up? Do you think your business is going to succeed mm. when people are in the streets throwing bricks through the windows? And all these bosses said, mm, that's, that's, and they hadn't seen anything like that before. I think it does matter. And I think we're seeing now a degree of um, unhappiness in the country. Mm. Lots of people thinking, what has capitalism ever done for me? Mm. Well, of course, your former employer, the FT, has, some might say, rallied to this cause recently. Um, I quote, adding the label purpose onto existing corporate models will not be enough. That's the words of the FT. That's quite right. Very recently. Um, Again, the editor of the FT, the outgoing editor of FT, we need a common vision for truly sustainable capitalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think that means? I don't know. <laughs> Let me understand the financial time. No. Um, uh, well, it means, I don't know what it means, to be absolutely honest with you. But I think that, uh, I mean, where I take heart is, I think things are and will change because I think the way uh, business is developing, the old models are kind of fading away. Companies to succeed in the future, the, the relationship between employer and employee is changing and will change further. Technology allows employees to know a lot more about the strengths and weaknesses of their employer. And the skills that employers need are different from the skills they used to need. So the old world where the boss could bully people around and um, people politely accept that that's going. Um, And I think that um, in the future, companies will have to place much more emphasis on attracting and retaining talent. And the kind of talent they will need will be softer skills. AI can do all the boring stuff. They're going to need creative people with great ideas. And they're going to have to be nice to them. Right. Well, what role humans? Well, we'll explore with the two of you um, where education might um, fit into this. I mean, we could speculate, couldn't we, about the role of business creators. But I I put it to you, Richard, that um, some say that all the the people who fuel these businesses, the investors, the city care about, are their own financial returns. And until that changes, we won't, in the call of the FT, come up with any form of sustainable capitalism. Is that being too harsh on these investors? pretty well spot on. I mean, it's interesting that, uh, you know, only now are um, investors beginning to ask questions about the environment. I mean, they're prepared to turn a blind eye if um, it seems uh, in their interest to turn a blind eye. So I think over the last dozen years, there have been all kinds of cases where crazy things have happened and investors have heard of particularly the banking crisis. The banking crisis Mm -hmm. was an investor-driven drama where people uh, like Northern Rock, uh, you know, were heroes because they stretched the the, um, elastic band. Although here is until the elastic band broke. (laughs) Yeah, and I see, um, Emma, you're nodding there when we talk about this sort of remaking Mm. of of capitalism. And it sits quite to the core of your task force, doesn't it? Just tell us briefly what 
what is the purpose of this and, and what you're noticing? Yeah, so we're, we're working, especially in the UK, um, with the finance sector on how they can ensure they achieve the UN 17 sustainability goals by 2030, because right now we're, we're a long way off that. Right. Um, our three main focal points are advocacy, so advocacy for the, for the SDGs, um, and then working with companies from an internal level perspective, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, things to do with not using paper cups or not using straws right the way through to, you know, going paperless. Um, and then we're also working at sort of an industry-wide level in terms of, you know, charters and how we can actually perhaps raise money that is um, going to be directed towards achieving this the sustainability goals. Right. So what I was thinking about when Richard was talking was um, that... It's interesting now because a lot of the talk that we were having at uh, One Young World was around sort of ESG frameworks Mm -hmm. and how they're becoming more important at board level because obviously up until now sort of short-term returns and accountability has been directed at mainly the shareholders whereas I think that's been broadened to all stakeholders and there's certainly a societal expectation from a perspective of um, like at least consumer-led trends Mm -hmm. where you don't buy from people if you don't feel like they are you know, authentic leaders who are managing their businesses responsibly. Mm, and do you think people take the trouble to find out what they're really up to or are they pushed I, by a marketing th- slogan? Yeah. I, se- I sense that Richard may be sceptical, but I, tell I, us how you see it. I, I think that there's some... So, for example, take a brand like Patagonia, mm. who has grown out of a, you know their, their entire vision, their entire purpose is to create fantastic clothing sustainably and responsibly. And I know that if you're, you know putting that brand against other alternatives, nine times out of ten, Patagonia is going to perhaps, well, certainly for me, but for for other people, um, be the one you choose. Whereas I think if you've got different drivers and you're not seeking out that level of information, then that's actually down to perhaps a lack of education or a lack of interest in terms of what the alternatives are. Exactly. So the theory, Richard, is more transparency, um, a more interested consumer, in the provenance of all of these things? Yeah, I think one of the problems, to your point there, is lack of money is an issue mm. here. I mean, there are a lot of families and households in this country of, who are now really hard up. And, you know, it's fine going to a supermarket and saying, I want to know the source of them and, and, and so on and so on. But for most families, a lot of families, it's a question of eating. Mm. So environmental matters don't feature that high on the priorities of most families. A lot of people need to make their income stretch as far as possible. So Patagonia is brilliant, absolutely fantastic, <laughs> but not many really poor people probably buy their kit. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I'd agree. And I think one, right. one of the things we were talking about as well is, um, so for example, you know, years ago before nutritional facts were put on the back of packaging, there was almost that level of ignorance because, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know the saturated fat content or you wouldn't necessarily know the balance of, you know, I think traffic lighting it with a sort of green, amber, red almost makes it easy for people at quick glance to see, okay, well, is this sort of, you know. But I'll tell you what I think is interesting. If you just just go back to supermarkets for a half a tick, Mm. um, was that in... uh, Around the time, just ahead of the banking crisis, a lot of the supermarkets were making a very big deal about um, uh, environmental sustainability. And, you know, Marks and Spencer had this, uh, you know, there is no alternative, whatever mm-hmm. the line yeah. was. Plan A. But Plan A, there's no plan B, that was the thing. Uh, and, you know, good on them, really. Uh, but uh, since then, the consequences of the banking crisis uh, and austerity and everything that's gone with it, those are downplayed now. And I'm not saying that's wrong of the retailers at all, because the needs of their customers are now more 
uh, short term. I mean, when I was at the CBI, there were there was a wonderful initiative, which uh, was thrilling that you know all these companies were saying you know the job of a big company is to manage risk. Uh, climate change is a risk. Is our job to manage it, and we will. And they set all sorts of ambitious things out, and that was inspiring and exciting. But when you have a banking crisis of that scale, and when you have uh, austerity for ten years, and when you have um, households being squeezed, you adapt, and you, your isn't, your priorities become different. Isn't the challenge there though, that the only true breakthroughs in terms of innovation and the problems that we need to solve comes through risk? And clearly that has to be part of managing risk in the first place. But I wonder to what extent you get concerned that these large companies won't take the big risks that are needed for the breakthroughs in technology. That, that, well, those are different require. sorts of risks, if you don't mind my saying so. Mm. I mean, the, the technology risks are you take a bet and you, you succeed or you'll fail. The challenge in a way with um, environmental questions is that these are long-term risks. And um, I always remember 100 years ago meeting the boss of a big oil company who said he didn't believe in air pollution until he walked out of Waterloo Station in the smog. This must have been in the 40s and walked into a wall and broke his nose. And then he realized, oh, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. And the trouble with um, the challenge for businesses particularly on environmental matters, is that uh, the consequences of the risk won't emerge for a little while, although it's getting closer. Mm. Well, in terms of something right in front of your nose, Richard, you know, um, this is a conversation that has affected the British Museum in previous months and years, and it's the relationship that large corporates have yeah. in, you know, solving the world's largest problems. And yeah. There's been a lot of controversy around, you know, who sponsors yeah. what. And I just wonder what you say to the critic who says, you know, the large oil and gas companies have no role to play in getting us out of this mess. I'm paraphrasing, aren't I? But what yeah. do you make of this? I think it's about as wrong as it possibly could be. I mean, I'm not here to defend the energy companies, but the only way we're going to get to net zero is going to be by technology change. And the only people who can do that are the people with vast balance sheets and the capacity and the need to do it. What we know is that uh, these big oil companies in 30 years' time, 20 years' time, won't exist in their present form. The question is, how do we get from here to there and how fast? But the only people who are going to do it is them. Well, I was going to say, I think the natural tendency in terms of in the media, in terms of debate, is almost to, to kind of pick opposing sides and go at it but actually I think it's going to be an inclusive attitude that is going to achieve the best result here because ultimately you know I I don't truly believe that anyone wants the world to be in a terrible position. I just believe that it's a combination of knowing who to ask the right questions in order to come up with the, with the right solution. Right. So on your task force, in theory, would you have a payday lender around that table? Oh, <laughs> Well, in theory, yes, simply because they're representing a demographic. Now, it's the payday lenders are kind of going out anyway, right. so it's not necessarily um, something where they will be front row or anything. But mm-hmm. it, essentially, they're going to. There's a moral responsibility there. There's a sustainable responsibility there. There's an environmental responsibility there. All of which we could perhaps have an ability to shape. Okay, and Richard, you've had to chair these sorts of balanced, nuanced conversations by giving the payday lender a seat or whoever we might represent, switch out that name or example with, do we not give them credibility, credence, respect? You're thinking about oil companies sponsoring museums, for example. For example, or indeed indeed in this example, you know, to what extent are some people left out in the cold? Well, I think that there are some corporates that probably will be left out on the cold just because their business is a long way away from the values and the um, priorities of the corporation concern. So what I was going to say was um, with the task force, whilst the people who are sat on it work for companies, not one person is a representative of a company. I do not sit on that task force as in my capacity as our capital. And in fact, the whole point of One Young World is 
representation of young leaders. And so in my mind, you know, there can sometimes be a disconnect between someone who, you know, works at a bank, yet in their spare time, they are passionate advocates of, you know, marine equality. Yeah, it's much more personal. And it's Richard, much more personal. I wonder to what extent, and I've got lots I want to ask you about, both of you on this, I wonder to what extent universities are more complex to manage uh, than businesses. That I think a... they're far more complex. I mean, I really do. Um, that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're running a big company, uh, you have to make some choices and uh, and you have to work with colleagues to make the right choices. But once you make the choices, you just get on with it. Whereas if you're the vice chancellor of a university, the chances are you're very important in the city that you're working in. You'll have large numbers of employers. You'll have a very wide range of um, people working with you, some of whom's first instinct when you say we're going to do this will say we're going to set up a committee to think about that. <laughs> Uh, and um, it's much, and you have, I mean, the power of stakeholders is much more diverse in a university. So I think it's a much tougher job. Because the theory, Emma, is that education and business collaborate brilliantly together. I just wonder mm. uh, to what extent you see that in practice. And Not many business leaders have made it as vice chancellors of universities. One or two have, but most have failed. No, in, well, <laughs> well, indeed. And often there, and finally, I have one of the recommendations of, of your review was the extent to which we regulate who is allowed to go and give a lecture. In a university. Yeah, well, it was one of the recommendations <laughs> of the Lambert Review, but there you go. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was about, and I guess making these worlds, I guess, um, better connected matters. Yeah, I think there's been a massive shift, especially in the last sort of 10 years with, um, so I think education has a huge part. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to do my, you know, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. I, I'm not particularly academic. I'm more naughty curious, let's just say. Naughty um, curious. Naughty curious. There as in, I, I don't like to learn the conventional way that people teach me. I almost like to find my own solutions or my own answers to mm. problems that I kind of troubleshoot. Um, but I think what's been really empowering is the likes of, you know, YouTube and how to and um, books and availability of content on the internet, meaning that whilst I went and did a business degree, I actually sought out information on so many different subjects which have actually informed the connection I have between my education and my business. It's, it's acted as a bridge for me and I know it's acted as a bridge for many other people in terms of kind of cross-pollinating the application of academia yeah. into business. So this is a great question, Richard. How should the universities or, or the chancellors of the world's great universities see this opening up, this democratisation, this uh, breaking up, If you, I guess, in terms of what Emma's describing? How should they see it? Is it the enemy? Is it to be embraced? No, but it is actually really difficult, I think, because, um, for example, numbers have developed uh, online pedagogy and failed. It's just tricky. It's hard. It's not the same. And uh, an assumption that you can, you know, teach a course one way with the personal interaction between a tutor and uh, and students, and you can do that uh, online, I don't think it's right. I think it's just no. much more complex than that. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, there are some businesses that have made an enormous success of creating online teaching mechanisms, particularly in, for example, in uh, Latin America. There are some astonishing examples there, uh, and in some parts of Central Europe. But it's jolly difficult for an old-style university with a big campus and, you know, 20,000 students there. It's tricky to make the change. Yeah, no, I understand. Now, I'm conscious of our time together. Say, Emma, a question for Richard and also vice versa. Something you'd like to ask each other about something we've touched on, something uh, perhaps that you've noticed about their own journey. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting for me is how you've had a portfolio career which has now resulted in taking on sort of board positions with areas that are clearly your 
passions as well as crossing over into your your background and for, for me I've already kind of had a little bit of a portfolio career but what I'm really noticing is um, the strand that's been outside of my career has always been social impact and working with charities or um, One Young World or initiatives or committees or boards because I don't feel like I get that fulfilment in the job because there isn't ne- necessarily the platform to do that and so if you were me at 30 with my career ahead of me how would you try and best incorporate all the stuff that I do outside of my job into the role and to benefit the businesses that I work with as a pioneer in doing so as one of the first people to try and do so in my space gosh uh well Two things that you said earlier, which really stayed with me and which I think are the founding principles of what you're talking about and what you want to be, are go on asking stupid questions. I think that's really important. And endless curiosity is what uh, will drive you forward. And then things turn up. That's the thing. What Woody Allen said, uh, you know... 80% of success. Yeah. is turning up. Yeah. <laughs> so Opportunistic. Keep, yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, you're kind to say I had a portfolio career. I didn't have a portfolio I stayed at the FT for over 30 years. <laughs> and it was only at the end of that I thought, crikey, um, you know, I've only got so much time left. I'll try and do as much as I possibly can. You managed to do so many in that Yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, it's sped up quite a bit. It's sped up. up. <laughs> Accelerated. Um, Richard, a question for Emma, please. Well, I'm fascinated by how, because you've got such a diverse range of interests and thoughts, how do you kind of prioritise things in your head? So first and foremost, it's kind of, I eat, sleep, breathe my job. I love it. So I haven't really touched on what I do with our capital, but as an operating partner, I work to support the um, companies in our portfolio that we right. buy to to kind of work with the management team and support them with things, you know, like growth strategies. Right. Um, and so I love so that. So a consultancy it, or a I'm, shareholder? I'm, or I'm, a... I'm essentially sort of in a consulting capacity, but I work, I work for our capital. Yeah. yeah. So... It's, it's interesting because, you know, that was like one example I'm doing at the moment is I'm working with a real estate firm called Cluttons. You know, they're, they're a really old surveyor yeah. within the UK. And, and the project I'm working on in particular is using technology to transform the way they work with their, you know, staff internally, but also with their clients. So that's um, building a portal. Mm. So really relevant for this conversation. It's all about the application of technology. Mm. So for me, I was fortunate enough to get involved at a stage where um, they'd done sort of the decision making around, OK, well, this is what we want to do. But then I get to work with the team internally and and the team of developers in terms of building this solution. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, well, there is a blank piece of paper and then there is this and I get to be instrumental in in how we create that. So, So that's the one thing because that's, you know, feeding my curiosity. It's feeding my creativity. It's also you know, a little bit entrepreneurial because you essentially get to do like a little mini, mini business. Um, and then outside of that, um, you know, the, the FinBiz task force is kind of, I'm always wearing that hat. I'm always kind of networking, meeting new people. I love, you know, g- going out and meeting new people and for no reason, for no ulterior motive other than to find out their story and see whether there's any um, connection. And so for me, they do synonymously kind of dovetail into each mm-hmm. other, yeah. which, which which is really nice. And sometimes, I guess, having more than one hat might help that. It does. Open doors. Now, I'm going to ask um, the same quick bunch of questions I ask all of our guests, but I, I can't help but remember something you said earlier on in our conversation, Emma, which is the day you stop learning, the day you stop reading will be a sad day. Yeah. I'm guilty of this, Richard, which is stumbling into Waterstones and picking up the just out, the newest book on the table. So this is a long way of saying... What do you think 
today's business leaders can learn from the great sweep of history because there can be a tendency to just gaze into the future to feel that anything past a year ago is utterly irrelevant? Well, I think that one thing I would say is perhaps that um, what you can learn from history is if you are about to say this time it's different, you're going to go bust shortly afterwards. <laughs> um, and there, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually rather a freak in that I love reading about business cycles and I love reading about market failures and uh, financial catastrophes. I just, I just do. I've got a huge shelf of books about those. And uh, that's partly why, in my personal affairs, I'm so cautious in my, you know, all my money's kind of in the bank account. <laughs> so I think you can, from reading about economic cycles, you can learn stuff. You can get a sense of, of the pace of change and how things move. And you can get a kind of sense that says, um, this looks absolutely fantastic and everything's absolutely wonderful, but maybe there's something creaking in the joints yeah. there. And I did you get the sense when you were leading the CBI during the financial crisis, you know, you took up that role in 2006, yeah. the, the sort of conversations that your peers in the business community were having had any sense or understanding of history? I don't mean to load the question, but I'm just interested. I didn't, to be absolutely honest. In a sense, my sense of history made me slow to realise what was happening because I knew, the one thing I knew about British banking system was British banks don't go bust. There hadn't been a banking bust in the UK since um, like 1860. And so for me to see a queue forming outside Northern Rock, I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe my eyes. Interesting. So history can be unhelpful in that situation. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, that's why I wish we had longer, because, of course, you sat on that Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England uh, for three years. Another another hat. Now, Emma, I'm wondering to myself who you'd most like to meet. I ask all our guests this very briefly. This is our quickfire question. Somebody for coffee, half an hour, and I'm going to limit you to someone who's still alive. It's going to be Yuval Harari. Um, I'm reading... So the Israeli author? The Israeli author, of yeah. Sapiens. Sapiens and Homodeus, which have, have, have sort of fantastic... Homodeus is a terrible book, didn't well, you? Well, I, really, I actually really enjoyed it. It's more, I know he's yeah. so arrogant. He said he's so, sorry. I shouldn't take the arrogance out of it, yeah, and okay. then actually, <laughs> that the, he, he is a man of substance. Yeah, he's and certainly. He's beyond definitely that. thought-provoking. Um, it feeds my kind of curiosity. Yeah. I, I provoke yeah. lots of thoughts. I mean, mainly I like to throttle it. <laughs> 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 the first time we've had guests please, disagree about the Please don't throttle great. my coffee guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Well, that, that would be, yeah, be you, Val. Exactly, right. I think you have another sort of double shot in mind for him, Richard. But who, who would you like to meet? I would love to meet Hilary Mantel uh, because the third volume of her fantastic trilogy on uh, Henry VIII is, I think, coming out in the spring. So this is the and author that, of Wolf Hall? Wolf Hall, yeah, and Bring Up the Bodies. And spring is too far. I can't wait for spring. So I need, if you could arrange it, a cup of coffee now to tell me what actually it's going to happen. Excellent. I love it when someone, well, fiction, of course, but based in uh, exactly. based in historical fact. Yeah. Brilliant choice. Great. We will link to that. Emma, um, uh, hopefully not one of you, Al, you Al's no, books. I don't not. want to set us off again. But. It's not actually. Um, <laughs> it's a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Brilliant. I don't know whether either of you have read it. Robert um, Kiyosaki? It is, but I kind of believe it should be um, almost like recommended at education level. Um, it teaches you all about the importance of building up, like, you know, passive income and the emphasis is on making money work for you mm. rather than you working for money. So essentially if you if you work your entire life in a job that 
you know, pays you PAYE, you're entirely dependent on that salary, on that employer to sustain your life. The whole point of things like passive income, i.e. buy a rental property or make some investments, is that what you do over time is you increase its ability to look after you without even having to go to work, which is what we're all aiming for. God, I wish I'd read that 50 years years ago. (laughs) It is a book I've read and given to others. Whether or not I have paid any attention to it is another matter. Um, Let's turn the clock back. A piece of advice to your former self, Emma. Um, So it's kind of two pieces. Tell us where you go back to, forgive me. So I would just say, so the, the, the thing I say to everyone now is be authentically you. Because essentially you can't be anything other than you, really. And I think what we all try and do in some way, shape or form is chameleonize ourselves so that we're not too much, but we're not too little, but we temper our you know, opinions, especially when we're coming out and, and, and you know, first starting in work or, or in life, you're not necessarily quite in a position to be like, I am on unapologetically me and you either like it or you don't. Whereas I'm now in a position where I am, you know, respectfully, but unapologetically me. And um, it's actually kind of quite fabulous um, owning who you are um, and, and not feeling afraid that that's not okay. And the reason that's Partly your advice to your former self is you sense that you muted that to, to a I certain extent. I think I muted it to begin, to begin with, for sure. And I think it was all about, you know, there's a part of that to play, which is, um, you know, finding your feet and, and your truth and, and feeling comfortable with that. Um, but also it was kind of, I was quite risk averse, I think. Um, and so now I would say to myself, be brave and be bold and do it sooner because actually failure or looking a bit silly is absolutely fine because you'll learn from it and you'll move on so quickly right. and you'll learn so much from it. And maybe embracing some of those Just contradictions embrace, as yeah. well. Walt embrace Whitman, it. I contain multitudes. There yeah. we go. Um, Richard, what would you say? Advice to you for myself? Um, I would say, um, this sounds a bit uh, pretentious and pompous, so if you want to throttle me, feel free. Uh, <laughs> there's a poem called Ithaca. Do you know it? By mm. Kavafi. Do you know that? And uh, it, what it essentially is, says is have a long-term goal, but don't let it dominate your life and have fun on the way. Uh, take your time, um, you know, enjoy the sunshine. Um, uh, and when you get there, it may be what you expected when you started off, and it may not be, but you'll have enjoyed the journey. And uh, as you get older, that becomes more important. Excellent advice. We will link to the poem. I have to ask, though, to what extent did you have a long-term goal? I didn't have a long-term goal at all, actually. Uh, my, partly because my dear late father couldn't believe that working for a newspaper was a proper job. <laughs> uh, he said, when are you going to get a proper job, Richard? I said, well, I don't know. I'll stick around for a bit. <laughs> did, did he live to see Well, he wouldn't have lived to see you edit it. He did, yeah, yeah, no, he did. Yeah. And at that point, did he? Uh, yeah, he thought that maybe, was... maybe. Well, he, there was probably a pension going with it or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, he was a sweet man. Yeah, good. An, an extraordinary journey, uh, Sir Richard Lambert, Emma Bell. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ali. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast, powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.